And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. As we're rocking and rolling through the week, learning how to explain and defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And uh, if you're a veteran to this show, you know that uh, we just have a wide assortment of programs here. Uh, we had a fantastic program Monday with Benjamin Handelman on justification and it actually paired really nice with uh, Hugo Delgado actually the following Friday when he was talking about justification and imputed righteousness and things like that. So we, ha- we have a wide variety of things. One th- and occasionally, as you know, like whenever you're doing fitness training is you want to push it. Right. Every now and then you, you want to push your body to grow. And uh, we do that sometimes here in the dojo, uh, especially with Pat Flynn. Um, man, when he dives into theistic apologetics, it is uh, it is uh, it pushes you to limit as far as, uh, you know, your cognitive ability, especially if you don't really know a lot of philosophy. And then there's other areas of theology, too, that maybe are a little bit more of a steep climb than others. One area that we haven't touched on a lot is the area of a trinity. And, of course, the trinity is, is one of those doctrinal errors that uh, it it um, is very complex. There's many different moving parts to it. There's philosophical aspects. There's biblical aspects to it. There's a whole history behind the trinity. And uh, so I think a lot of believers, a lot of Trinitarians, shy away from defending the Trinity against its detractors. And... Uh, and we don't really understand the biblical roots of it. And so I thought it would be fantastic to have a fellow who has been on the show once before, and he's doing a bang-up job on social media, just doing really hardcore instruction for Christians on how to defend the Trinity from the Bible. And not only from the pages of the New Testament, but he even dives into the Old Testament and brings out a lot of very interesting ideas, precursors, foreshadowings that spoke to the final revelation of God in Christ and, you know, the Trinity. But the Trinity was already being revealed in the Old Testament. And uh, that is Sam Shamoon. The Assyrian Encyclopedia. Uh, Sam, Sam is a, a recent revert to uh, the faith. He belongs to the Assyrian Church. And uh, if you're familiar with YouTube and familiar with uh, Islamic apologetics, you know Sam. And uh, Sam is a great instructor. And he does a series of videos regarding this mysterious angel of the Lord in the Old Testament and how that fits in as a... a uh, pointing towards the Trinity. So uh, we're going to have Sam Shamoon come on the show at the other side of the break. And he's going to talk about the angel of the Lord. So for you who love Scripture, uh, especially love those hidden things in Scripture that you probably wouldn't notice unless somebody pointed out to you, you're going to love that segment. And also it's going to bolster your faith in the Trinity as well. So that's coming up on the other side of the break. And on this side of the break, we are going to start off our show with the Finding the Fallacy. As you know, every show we look at an informal fallacy. Today's 
Fellacy is proving too much. And also we meet an early church father, today's early church father. Okay, he is not a well-known name at all. In fact, I would even say some uh, apologists probably aren't even familiar with him. His name is Marcinius Mercaner. Marcellus Mercaner. Um, again, not a household name, but nevertheless is one of those uh, early church fathers that uh, precede us. And, and we should know a little bit about him, a little bit about his writings. In fact, I probably have a little bit of time to um, read from at least one of his surviving works. So, uh, yeah, so we got a lot in store for us today. And indeed, we want to start off, as we always do, by welcoming everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the dojo. I want to welcome all our live stream audience that faithfully watches on social media. I also want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world, either through our handy-dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And two great resources for you right there. Uh, you want to check both of them out if you don't have it on your iPhone or your other phone. Just download the app, the Virgin Most Powerful app. You can listen to live stream programming. You can access older programs. You can access all sorts of freebies on the app. Very helpful and valuable. Also, um, check out the website, virtualmostpowerfulradio.org, and uh, that gives you access to our programs. You can share it, tell your friends about it, share the mission to make Jesus better known and loved. Um, that's the place to go, folks. As for my own stuff, you want to check out handsonapologetics.com or garymachuda.com. Both will uh, keep you abreast not only of the schedule for this show, but it also will um, point you to other things as well. Um, uh, talks that I've done, uh, um, books, and uh, even upcoming events. So check it out. Uh, handsonapologetics.com or garymachuda.com. So enough about me. Let's dive into our finding the fallacy for today, which is the proving too much fallacy. And in philosophy, proving too much is a logical fallacy which occurs when an argument reaches the desired conclusion in such a way as to make that conclusion only a special case or corollary consequence of a larger obviously absurd conclusion. Okay, so there's a lot there. Let's break it down really quick. Uh, first, it is an argument that reaches its conclusion in such a way that the conclusion becomes a special case. Okay, so for example, the argument not only proves what you're trying to conclude, but it proves other things as well. And so what happens when you're proving too much is you single out just one of those because that's what you want to prove. But by doing that, you're making your conclusion a special case amongst other things that that same argument also demonstrates. Or a corollary consequence of the larger. In other words, that it's just a natural outfalling of the argument. And so by doing that, uh, you not only prove your point, but you prove other points as well. And of course, the proving too much fallacy uh, really runs aground when one or more of those other conclusions are absurd, they can't possibly be true. And so you're, uh, basically your argument falls apart unless you try to save it by making your conclusion a special case. 
so that's always important to run through the logic whenever you're giving arguments for the faith, demonstrating the faith. Think it through. Think, what does my argumentation conclude? Is it is my conclusion the only conclusion, or are there other corollaries that would go along with the argument? And if those corollaries are absurd, then don't use it, because you'll be committing today's fallacy, which is the proving too much fallacy. All right, so let's meet our early church father for today. Like I said, not a very well-known father. It is Marius Mercator, who flourished around A.D. 431. In view of his relationship to Augustine, it is likely enough that Marius Mercator was by birth an African. Uh, later, he lived in Rome, from whence in 418, he sent Augustine two treaties, not uh, not now extent, against Pelagius. By 429 AD, we find him living in a Latin monastery in Thrace, where he wrote a number of works opposing Pelagianism and also Nestorianism, largely for the benefit of his fellow monks. Uh, besides composing numerous short writings of his own, uh, also translated a considerable number of Nestorian works from Greek into Latin in a, slavish, a slavishly literal manner, so that his fellow monks could see the genuine heresy of Nestorius. Uh, from amongst his works, probably the most notable one is his uh, uh, commendatorium uh, against the heresy of Pelagius and Celestius. And this was written uh, sometime around AD 431. Uh, Macarius Cantor's work uh, also includes uh, the writings of Julian as well. The first of these two works is against Pelagianism. It was written not long after Augustine's death, possibly around 430 AD, but not later than 432 most likely 431 A.D. It offers a rather bitter critique of the views of Julian of Eclanum, which is also one of those people that we mentioned in this show. The writings of Macarthur, although the, with other related documents, were assembled probably about 533 A.D. and probably by a Scythian monk in Constantinople or Thrace. So, um, so that's pretty much what we have from Macarius Macarthur. Let me quote a little bit in regards to Celestius. Now, remember, Celestius was a co-worker with Pelagius in the spreading of the heresy of Pelagianism, namely a denial of original sin, that we can work our way to salvation without the aid of grace, or that grace was just like an add-on. He says, Celestius had become so bold that openly and publicly he spreads his views abroad among the people in words much the same as these. So this is what uh, the Pelagians are saying. Adam was created mortal, and he would have died whether he had sinned or not. The sin of Adam injured himself alone and not the whole human race. When infants are born, they are in a state in which Adam was before the fall. Since not everyone belonging to the human race dies through Adam's death, Neither does everyone belonging to the human race rise up through Christ's resurrection. Infants have eternal life even if they're not baptized. And uh, that concludes his list of our early church father for today, who is Marius Mikator. All right, coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to have a good friend, Sam Shamoon, come on. We're going to talk about the angel of the Lord. Stay tuned. 
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, in Hands-On Apologetics. And like I said in the first segment, uh, Trinity is a huge topic, and I know many Christians shy away from defending the Trinity because of the complexities of understanding, you know, the, the mechanisms in which we explain the Trinity, the biblical background for it. And that's why I invite our guest today to dive into some of the biblical background, even Old Testament background to the Trinity. And that is Sam Shamoon. Many of you are already familiar with Sam's work on social media, especially on YouTube. He knows everything from Islam to Jehovah Witnesses to modalism to you name it. Uh, he has a fantastic channel that I highly recommend. I've been addicted to this channel for quite some time. Jedix. Good to be here, my precious brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray the Holy Spirit fills us, fills you for the glory of Jesus Christ and guide this conversation so I can speak the Word of God correctly without error and that Jesus Christ our Lord who's Jehovah in the flesh or Yahweh in the flesh, be glorified in Jesus' name. So thank you for the plug, but I'm kind of rough on the edges, so a lot of people may be taken <laughs> aback by my rough Assyrian exterior, because a lot of people may not know I'm Assyrian, descendants of these not-so-great Ninevites. You know, I'm in the Old Testament. <laughs> you take one look at me and you see why Jonah wanted us to be destroyed, right? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, if in fact you just came back to the Assyrian Church, maybe if could you explain for our listeners, probably are mostly Roman Catholic, uh, what is the relationship of the Assyrian Church to the Church as a whole? Yes, it's it's ironic when I used to be a very staunch staunch Protestant, and I'm I'm not saying anything negative about Protestants. I came out of it. I used to actually dislike you because you pose a problem for my view that the shorter canon is the true canon. So you used to get me upset, and I wanted you know, you to lose. And <clears throat> in your but glory to God, we're all on a journey. Also, you came out of Protestantism, if I recall, correct? You were No, Protestant. no, I'm a, I'm a cradle Catholic, yeah. Well, so th thank you for correcting that. I, <clears throat> I thought you were one of the converts. Well, as I started examining the arguments <clears throat> by the Church Fathers, and thank the Lord for these Protestant-Catholic debates, because a lot of Catholics don't understand Many Protestants are not exposed to <clears throat> early church history. But when I watched the debates between Catholic apologists and Protestants, the Catholics would often refer to the early church fathers, the heirs of the apostles, their disciples and those who came after them. And that got me curious to see. And the more I studied what the early church fathers believed, the more I became troubled, the more my views had to change until finally I said, let me... <clears throat> go back to the historic church of my ancestors, the Assyrian Church of the East. Now, ironically, you just mentioned one of Augustine's companions who wrote against Pelagius and Nestorianism. The Assyrian Church of the East has been labeled Nestorian for centuries, supposedly because they deny that Christ is unipersonal. But as you know better than I do, in 1994, <clears throat> the then Patriarch of the Assyrian Church of the East met with the then Pope, and they wrote a Christological confession agreeing that both churches hold to the same view of Christ, that Jesus is truly God, one eternal person became flesh. He's not a divine Christ and a human Jesus. So 
I appreciate the fact that finally the Assyrian Church of the East is recognized to hold to the uni personality of Christ. But now there is one thing, and I have to be upfront. I affirm the title Theotokos. I do believe Mary is the God-bearer, the mother of Christ. In the Assyrian Church of the East, they do not like to use the title. Following the lead of Nestorus, they say Christotokos. So there, I'm in the Church of the East, but I accept fully Theotokos. She is the mother of God. That is her title. And if you really ask the Assyrian Church bishops, if you ask them, do you believe that that baby conceived in her holy womb by the Spirit, was he truly God in her womb? They'll say yes. Was he fully God in her womb? Yes. Did he cease to be God? No. So she was carrying God? Yes. Is she the mother of God? No, she's the mother of Christ in relation to his humanity. You see the problem? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Hey, thank God for that reunion. Uh, yep. Because, uh, yeah, it's it's sad. A lot of um, the, this unity within the body of Christ that has to do over language and terminology, although we essentially believe the same things, we just use different language. Yes, exactly. In fact, I was given an article by a brother in the Lord where a scholar, and I don't have the name off the top of my head, actually examined, I guess, one of the writings of the stores to show that he actually was orthodox in his view of the Trinity and the person of Christ, and that he was <clears throat> falsely misrepresented. So I'm not a scholar in these areas, but I'm studying and I'm on a journey. But you probably know a little more about that than I, that Nestorius, though he did not like to use the term Theotokos, still nonetheless did not believe there was a divine Christ and a human Jesus. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah, so um, it's the Trinity, man, I have to tell you, I admire you because of uh, just the fantastic work you've done defending the Trinity. And what I really love was when you dive into the, the Old Testament roots of the Trinity, because I, I know a lot of people read the Bible, they're familiar with the Old Testament, but there's certain mysterious things that we kind of blip over that point towards the Trinity. Amen. In fact, this is something that's astonished me. As I came back to the faith <clears throat> in my late teenage years, early adulthood, I was introduced to books and articles by evangelical scholars, particularly Reformed Calvinists, and they would mention the Old Testament evidence for the triunity of God. Later I found out that the early church fathers already knew this and affirmed these facts and articulated them. In fact, as Ecclesiastes says, nothing new under the sun, and literally there isn't. And like I said, I'm new to this, and I'm learning, and I'm growing, and you would know more about this. But even the, with the issue of modalism, oneness theology, you'll find early church fathers already addressing that heresy. Because even back then, there were people who thought the Father was Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the human manifestation of the Father, patri passionism. And they condemned it from Scripture. So it's astonishing that we today, who are disconnected with the early church, assume that we're discovering things for the first time. But these great spirit-filled men already knew these things long before us, and they didn't have technology. They didn't have the Bible one volume, and yet they knew their Bible better than all of us. So yeah. with that said, <clears throat> one of the most convincing evidences that even the early church fathers used, for example, you'll find this in Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with Trifo the Jew. You'll find this in the church writer Tertullian. Now, I know he's not considered a father, but nonetheless, his views of the Trinity were solid. They were not <clears throat> defective or heretical. 
you'll find them referencing this unique figure in the Hebrew Bible called the angel of the Lord. Now, automatically when I say the term angel, most people are conditioned to assume spirit creature with wings. When I say angel, first thought usually comes in a person's mind, spirit creature with wings. Well, that's not what angel means in the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. The term angel, both in Hebrew and Greek, Hebrew, it's malach, and in Greek would be angelos, means a messenger. That's all it means. Even when Justin Martyr explains why Jesus in his pre-human existence is called angel, he says because he relays the messages of the Father to mankind. See, message, the message of the Father to mankind, and that's what an angel is. So in the Hebrew Bible, there's a reference to a particular messenger, clearly sent by God, so he's distinct from God, but he claims to be God, does things that only God can do, Others recognize he's God, worship him as God, and God honors him. God who sent him honors him as being God. And the early church fathers were convinced, and the evidence conclusively shows, that angel becomes Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So we can explore some of that evidence if you like, brother, but that's basically one of the strongest evidences that even the church fathers used from the Hebrew Bible to show God's triunity. And the reason why this is important, many... Christians will say, why is that important? Because the New Testament is the fulfillment, the completion and perfection of the Old Testament. If we cannot find a continuity between what the New Testament teaches about God, the Godhead, albeit the New Testament's much more fuller, more complete with the incarnation of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit in a way unprecedented, we expect there will be greater clarity and a more fuller revelation of the nature of God but it's not completely new it's a more fuller revelation of what's there in the Hebrew Bible and this is important for us to establish because in Deuteronomy 13 which is a passage that rabbinic Judaism uses against the Trinity in Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 to 10 there God clearly says to the Israelites Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 to 10 there may be a prophet or a dreamer of dreams who will foretell of a sign. It says the prophet will announce a sign. A dreamer may have a vision or a dream and tell you this is what's going to happen. And it takes place. God says it will happen. So they're going to prophesy accurately. But then they're going to tell you, come, let us follow gods that neither you nor your fathers have known. The Lord says, do not do that. The Lord is testing you to see whether you're going to follow the prophet and dreamer of dreams or will you maintain covenant fidelity, faithfulness to the commandments, that prophet, that dreamer has preached rebellion, he must die. Now, why is that relevant? I've even remember watching a debate between the late Walt, uh, no, he's still, I'm sorry, that's Walter Martin. He's still alive. Walter Kaiser and the late Pincus Lempide. A lot of people may not know who he is. Pincus Lempide was a renowned rabbinic Orthodox scholar on the resurrection of Jesus and wrote a book saying historically the resurrection took place, and he was an Orthodox Jew. But he says, even though the resurrection took place, Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews. I'm sorry, the Gentiles. Sorry for, may the Lord grant me clarity of speech. However, he doesn't fulfill the criteria of Messiah for us. Now, if he returns, I won't be surprised. And if he returns, then I'll believe in him. You see the logic? Hmm. The man was a historian. As a historian, he had to admit the resurrection is a historical event. God did raise Jesus, but that didn't mean that he as a Jew 
was to follow him because he had to stay faithful to the Torah. Now, why did he follow that approach? Because of Deuteronomy 13 again. It doesn't matter Jesus is raised from the dead. The Jew will say, because God is now testing us. Will we now follow Jesus and break covenant faithfulness? Or are we going to continue with the revelation that we know has been established? Because we don't find anything in the Hebrew Bible pointing to God becoming flesh or God as triune. This is why it's important in our evangelism to our Jewish friends to be able to show that throughout the Hebrew Bible, God has already prepared you for the revelation that God is multipersonal. So this is why it's important. Now, I said a mouthful. Did you want to say something? Yeah. Brother? <laughs> no, you know what? You set this up absolutely perfect because we're coming up to the break. And uh, so th that makes perfect sense that we need to give justification to show that uh, the idea of the Trinity and uh, is not something that's foreign from the Tanakh, you know, the, the Hebrew scriptures. And so therefore, you know, they can follow Jesus. So that, that was perfect, Sam. Uh, we're talking with Sam Shamoon, talking about the angel of the Lord. A lot more to come right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Sam Shamoon of Shamoonian uh, Channel on YouTube. By the way, check it out because he's got great instructions, high-intensity instructions, and everything you could think of revolving around Christ and the Trinity. And uh, we're talking about the angel of the Lord. And, Sam, you couldn't have set this segment up better because... Uh, for non-Catholics, for Jews, it's almost like we're pulling a rabbit out of a hat. You know, this idea that Christ is God and the Messiah is God. And, and, but, you know, what, uh, what you're going to give us now, uh, we're able to show that this is actually rooted in the Old Testament. Yes. In fact, just let me remind your audience, if they want to get the book by that Orthodox Jewish historian, his name is Pinchas. Pincus Lapid, The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. You can find it on Amazon. The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. Pinchas, Pinchas, P-I-N-C-H-A-S, Lapid, A-L-P-I-D-E. I highly recommend it. He affirms the historicity of the resurrection. And again, don't forget why this is important. Even Justin Martyr saw it was important because these are the arguments he used in his debate with a group of Jews, the leader of whom was named Trifo, dialogue with Trifo the Jew. Now, with that said, let's go on some of the evidence because I know time is fleeting. If you want to find the first recorded mention, that doesn't mean he didn't exist prior to that, meaning that the first time this particular figure shows up is in Genesis 16, verses 7 to 14, which is also relevant to our Muslim friends because there the angel appears to Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. Now, Islam claims Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael, but there's no evidence for that assertion. But they believe that nonetheless. So it's ironic that the woman whom they claim to be the ancestor of their prophet Muhammad is confronted with the angel of Jehovah or the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. I'll just say angel of the Lord for convenience sake. So let's read it. It's Genesis 16, 7 to 14. Genesis 16, 7 to 14. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my Mr. Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord told her, 
Go back to your mistress, mistress and submit to her. Now, here's where it gets astonishing, because when you read the, the scriptures, if Gabriel shows up, he'll say, I'm Gabriel, and I'm the angel who stands in the presence of the Lord, like he said to Zechariah. But he'll never claim to be God or claim to do what God does. Whereas with this angel, he directly claims to do the works of God. And when he's asked his name, he says, why do you ask my name? And I'll, I'll get there in a minute. The angel added, here's the key. Look, verse 10. I, the angel speaking, will so increase your descendants that they'll be too numerous to count. So the angel just said, I will give you physical offspring. I will cause you to have so many physical descendants, you can't count them. So the angel just claimed the ability to create and give life. So he just claimed to be creator and life giver. The angel of the Lord said to her, you are now with child and you'll have a son. So he even knows that she'll give birth to a son, not a daughter. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard you of your misery. So notice the distinction. The Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he'll live in hostility toward his brothers. Now, notice Hagar's reaction. Not only did the angel say he will give her physical descendants, showing that he's creator and life giver, she realizes this one is no creature because here's what the text says. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. But all throughout the narrative, it's the angel speaking to her. Because the angel speaks, God speaks. Because the angel is God. The Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. <clears throat> For she said, have I now seen the one who sees me? So she realized, the one I'm seeing is the one who sees me and is aware of all. And that's the God who sees. So she clearly identifies angel as the all-seeing God who's aware of all that takes place and aware of her affliction and she's astonished I really saw him because in the mindset of the Israelites to see God brought death but God in his mercy allowed them to see him in a form of some kind which brings me to the next example this one is astonishing Genesis 32 24 to 30 Jacob has been running away from his problems and using trickery and connivery to get ahead instead of trusting God and facing his problems, overcoming them to receive the blessing. So Jacob is on the run from Lebanon. He's left Lebanon and, and he's now about to meet Esau and he's afraid because he said sworn that if he sees Jacob, he'll kill him for deceiving Isaac from robbing Esau of the blessing. So in light of that, Genesis 32, 24 to 30. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. So here's a man who has a physical body that's so tangible, so real, you can actually physically touch it and wrestle, <clears throat> wrestle with it. And so the man shows his power that by one touch, he wrenched Jacob's socket out of place, leaving him with a limp all the rest of his life. That's how powerful this man is. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob realizes this man is no ordinary man. He has the power to bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, You're, you will no longer, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Now let me explain real quickly the name change. Jacob was given to him because he was a supplanter. He came out grasping Esau's heel because they were twins, trying to push him out of the way. So his name means someone who supplants 
and often will do so through deceit. So what the man is saying is you won't be known <clears throat> for being a deceiver. That's not going to be your characteristic. You're going to be known as a man who wrestled with God and man and overcame and now rule with God because Israel means ruling with God. So in the biblical worldview, names are significant. Names signify your characteristic. So he's saying you won't be characterized as a supplanter deceiver. You'll now be known and characterized by you facing your trials, wrestling with God and men, and prevailing in order to receive the blessing to rule. Okay? Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And there's another occasion where this is going to be re relevant. Why do you ask my name? Why do you ask about my character? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Pani El, meaning the face of God, saying, it is because I saw God, not a creature, not an agent. I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So Jacob knew this was God appearing as a man. Now, he didn't incarnate. He didn't become flesh. He didn't become human by nature. That only took one that only happened one time when our blessed Lord condescended to be born as a human male baby from the blessed womb of the virgin. But God can appear in human form or in any form that's tangible without taking the nature of that thing. I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. So Jacob knew this was God appearing as a man and wrestling with him to teach him, face your struggles, overcome them by faith, and you will receive the blessing. Now, who was this man whom Jacob knew was God? Was it the Father? Was it the Spirit? You don't need to guess. In Hosea 12, verses 2 to 5. In Hosea 12, 2 to 5, here Hosea is reflecting on the origin of Israel descending from Jacob. He's reflecting on Genesis. So he says this, Hosea 12, 2 to 5. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. So he's recounting Genesis. As a man, he struggled with God. That's what we just read. He struggled with the angel. Gary, do you see that? The God that he struggled with was the angel and he overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. Who? The angel who was the God that appears a man that he struggled with. He found him at Bethel, the house of God, and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name of renown. Wow. Hosea, a prophet, says that man who was God was none other than the angel that wrestled with Jacob. And Jacob wept and begged for his favor. And the angel's name is Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh, his name is of renown. Is that astonishing or what? Wow. Yeah, that is astonishing. Yeah, fantastic. Right? So, I don't know how much time we got to the uh, break. Uh, we got about two more minutes. Okay, then let me read this one because it says he found them at Bethel. Bethel is where Jacob had a vision of God, and he made a vow to God saying, if you deliver me and protect me, you'll be my God. I'll give you a tent. So Lebanon was deceiving Jacob out of his wages. So now notice what Jacob says. What did God do to protect him from Lebanon's trickery? Genesis 31, 10 to 13. Genesis 31, verses 10 to 13. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God, see, Jacob knows it's the angel, said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. He said, look up and see that all the male goats mating are streaked, speckled, or spotted, 
for I have seen all that Lebanon has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. The angel says, I'm the God of the house of God, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So the angel is saying, I'm keeping my end of the bargain. I'm saving you from Lebanon, who's, who's trying to mis mistreat you and deceive you. So I'm fighting for you, Jacob, because I am that God you saw at Bethel and you made a vow to me that if I protect you, I'll be your God. Well, I'm protecting you. And even Jacob knew this was the angel of God. And yet the angel says, I'm the God of the house of God. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, if, if for those who are watching live stream, I'm not ignoring Sam. I actually have my logos up. I'm going through marking all these passages. Wow. So you have this angel who uh, is called God. Uh, he was referred to God. Uh, it, yeah, it's truly amazing how uh, this angel pops up over and over in Scripture, Sam. And r quick question. Do you have an article with all these references yes, that people can I access? Have, yes. If they go to my blog, answeringislamblog.wordpress.com, and put in Angel of the Lord, I have many articles. And I also used to write for answeringislam.info. And I have articles on the angel of the Lord. And I can send you the links after this, and you can make them available. Yes, I have plenty of material, and I quote even scholarly authorities who are not Christian. Many of them are atheists or agnostic that admit, admit and acknowledge this angel is the human manifestation of God. Excellent. We're chatting with Sam Shamoon. More to come right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Sam Shamoon, talking about the angel of the Lord. And I have to tell you, I'm taking notes. I got my logos fired up, highlighting things. And I'm looking at these verses in English, in the Greek Septuagint, and the Hebrew. And folks, Sam has done his homework. I mean, it is using the divine name in these references. And Sam, you know, real quick, I know some people might be listening to this on the radio in their car, and they want to jot down these references. Again, can you tell us that website where they can yeah. access? They can go to my blog, answeringislamblog.wordpress.com, and just put in a search engine, Angel of the Lord. Many articles will come up, and I even have articles quoting the Church Fathers, Justin Martyr citing these very texts. So that's the easiest way. And then the other website I used to write for was answeringislam.info.info. There, if you go there and you do a search for the Angel Lord, many of the articles will pop up. All right, excellent. So you've already taken us through uh, several instances in Ge Genesis where this mysterious angel uh, claims to be able to do things God does, knows things God does. He's called God in the text. Uh, where do you want to go next? Yeah, uh, there's two more I want to real quickly because we can talk about the Spirit if we don't have time because okay. uh, we can come back. But because there's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament the Spirit is a divine person. But these two are important because it shows you that not only do people recognize this is God, but God confirms he's God. Here in Exodus 23, 2023, and by the way, in rabbinic literature, this passage posed a problem for them. You'll find in the Talmud discussions of how to deal with this text when the minnum, meaning the so-called heretics, use it. Exodus 23, 20 to 23. And what am I talking about? Here clearly a distinction between God and the angel, and yet the angel is united to God. 
Exodus 23, 20 to 23. And guys, I want everyone to remember who's listening, this is taking place on the mount. God has come down in a pillar of cloud on the mount. Moses has gone up to the mount and received living oracles in front of Israel. They're seeing the pillar of cloud. That's going to be significant in a minute. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I've prepared. It's God speaking. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. Now, let me park it there real quickly. God is telling the Israelites, if you anger him, he won't forgive you because my name is in him. He's explaining why this angel has the power to forgive sins or punish sinners because he embodies my name. And check any lexical source to confirm this. Name in the Bible means more than, hey, my name is Sam. Name signifies the characteristics, the nature, the being, or the authority of an entity. So this is basically God saying, the angel does what I do, forgive sins, something only God can do, because he embodies my essence. What I am, he is in nature, because we're one. That's exactly what the text means. And if you listen to him carefully and do what he says and do all that I say. Now notice the interplay. If you listen carefully what he says and do what I say. So they're distinct but unified. He says, I command. I say, he commands. Because they're one in one sense, not the same person. I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you to the land of the Aramites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and I'll wipe them out. So notice, at first, it's the angel who's going to wipe them out, but I'll wipe them out. Hear what he says and do what I say, because they're distinct yet one, because the angel embodies the essence of God, which is why he can forgive sins. Now, why is this relevant to Jesus? Notice this is taking place on a mount. Notice Moses is there. God has appeared in the pillar of fire, and this angel will go ahead of them to protect them, and he has the power to forgive sins, and God says, listen to him. Well, surprise, in Mark 9, 2 to 7, found in Matthew 17, verse 1 to 5, Jesus goes up on a high mountain with Peter, James, and transfigured. Moses appears and Elijah appears. And the cloud comes down because it says in Matthew 17, 5, a cloud overshadowed them. And Peter, James, and John saw the cloud and heard a voice audibly say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Just like God descended on the mount in a pillar of cloud and told Moses to Israel, this angel who's with me, listen to him, for he will not forgive your sins. And that's exactly what Jesus was able to do in Mark 2, 1 to 12, where he saw the paralytic and the faith of the people that brought him. Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews said, why does this fellow speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus did a miracle to show that he, the son of man, has power to forgive sins on earth. Sure sounds like the angels really similar to Jesus, and Jesus is a lot like this angel, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, the final one, if we have time, and I'm just going to sum it up because it's too long, but I want the audience to read Judges chapter 13, the entire chapter. This is the narration where God announces the birth of Samson, Samson to Samson's mother, Manoah's wife. The angel of God, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to her, but he appeared as a man. So she didn't know this was the angel. And he gave her instructions that she's pregnant like he did to Hagar. You're going to give birth to a son. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. So she went to her husband. This is in Judges 13, verses 3 to 23. 
she went to her husband and said, a man came, God came to me. His countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very terrible. Like he was amazing, his appearance. So I'm suspecting maybe he was the angel of the Lord, but I'm not convinced. I mean, I'm not certain. So Manoah prays, God send that man to instruct us. So the angel of the Lord appears again as a man. Now, Manoah does not know it's the angel. So he then reinforces instructions that he gave to Manoah's wife. Now I'm going to pick it up in the middle of the context. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you make ready a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord, Jehovah. For Manoah did not know that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. Now remember, Jacob asked the same thing. What is your name? And the man said, why do you ask my name? Now notice the response of the angel. This is Gen Judges 13 verse 18. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Pali. If you have your logos, you'll see Pali. Now you'll see why that's relevant in a minute. The word Pali implies, why do you ask about my being? It's beyond understanding. That's why the NIV renders it as beyond understanding. So notice what this man is saying. Don't try to inquire about my nature. It's beyond your ability to understand. It's beyond comprehension. But that cannot be said of a creature. Only God's nature is incomprehensible. And another point to note, the word Pali here is from the same root where we get Pele in Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will sh shall be on his shoulder, and he shall be called, his name shall be called, Wonderful, Pele from Pali, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here's a child born who, like the angel, is wonderful, and is called the Mighty God, the very title given to Yahweh in Isaiah 10, 21. Which is why in the Septuagint, if you have it, you're going to see that the Jews understood the child is the angel of the great council becoming flesh. Because they rendered Isaiah 9, 6 as that the child born of the woman is the angel of the great council. So they even saw the connection with the angel of God becoming this child, being born as a male baby from the virgin. In other words, they understood the Messiah would be the angel of God in the flesh. Now here's where it gets exciting. So Manoah's, Manoah took the kid, the young goat, with the Syrah offering and offered upon the rock to the Lord, to him who works wonders. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended. So they're seeing a man before their eyes jump into the flame of fire and disappear. Ascend in the flame of the altar while Manoah and his wife looked and they fell on their faces to the ground. Now here's the key. Judges 13, 21. Then the angel of, of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew <clears throat> that he was the angel of the Lord. Notice it didn't say he knew it was the Lord. He knew it was the angel of the Lord. <clears throat> and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Now, Gary, I'm a little confused. The text says Manoah knew this was the angel. But then he says, that was God that we saw face to face as a man we're going to die. And the wife says, well, if the Lord wanted us to die, he wouldn't accept the sacrifice. What made Manoah think that this angel is God, who's appearing as a man? What made Jacob think that angel, who appeared as a man that he wrestled with, was God that he saw face to face? Because they knew this was not a creature, but God Almighty, sent by God, appearing as a man to communicate God's revelations. And the final thing to note, 
The angel jumped in the burnt offering, became part of the sacrifice as a foreshadowing. This is the one who would offer his life as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering of sorts for our salvation. So there you go. Yeah. 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 Boy, that, that's so beautiful. I mean, it, it really does tie everything together. Yeah. I love that connection with Isaiah 9. Uh, very interesting connection. Uh, Sam, you know what? You have done fantastic because you have parked each segment absolutely perfect time-wise. And you got so much information. I wish we had more time so we could dive into the spirit. Uh, maybe we could do that in some future yes, program. Anytime, brother. Anytime. I'm more than happy to come back and talk about the spirit in the Old Testament. And people will be shocked. The Trinity was always there in the Tanakh. All right. Yeah. So we got maybe a minute and a half or left. I want to plug your channel on YouTube, which is Shimonian. Yep. Uh, check that out. And again, can you give those websites for those to check out your lesson material? Yes. Go to answeringislamblog.wordpress.com. Answeringislamblog.wordpress.com. And then answeringislam.info. On the answeringislam.info, look for individual authors and you'll find my name, Sam Shamoon. And all of this material is there free of charge. Use it for the glory of the triune God who lives. Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, for those who maybe are familiar with Sam's work, because he does a lot of work with a frequent guest on this program, uh, William Albrecht. Yep. And as you know, he debates a lot. Sam, do you have any debates oh, yes. uh, lined up? He scheduled a debate February 8th on gospel truth. He and I will be debating two Protestants on the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Mother. So pray for us. Absolutely. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, so everybody mark your calendars because you don't want to miss this debate. Um, Sam, I, I have to tell you, uh, I learned a lot on this program, and I really appreciate your work because you really do dig in and do the homework, and so everything checks out. Your uh, your uh, theology is solid, and people can trust it. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for coming on the program. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and I want to praise God for you because of your work in the canon. You made a believer out of me, and may the Lord Jesus use you and your ministry mightily for his glory. Amen. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, Sam Shamoon, please check out all these resources. Like I said, Sam is doing a fantastic work, and he's offering it for free. Take advantage of it for the Lord's sake. Wow, I can't believe the hour's already gone. Coming up next, we have High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everybody.